Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. It's hard to erase a lot of influences that your parents have on you um, growing up. In fact, whenever I make an absolutely terrible dad joke, my wife says to me, that's a Rob joke, reminding me of how painfully close my humor has degraded to that of my father. And for some of us, when we look at kind of the imprints our parents have on us, it's good. In other places, it's not as great. But when you look at social services like adoption or things like that, we see how volatile but how transformative a family experience, life in a home, could be. For me, foster kids, life in their original home is dangerous. There are harms, there are hazards. It's not a safe place, and yet those places were their places. Those homes were their homes, which means that even if they go to a foster family who has spent a lot of time creating a home that's safe, preparing themselves to welcome and love this child, even when a child comes into a new home, those atmospheres of safety and love can actually be met with feelings of insecurity and danger. Gifts, patterns, and healthy habits that are lovingly introduced by many foster parents actually threaten the hearts of the children they're trying to love. Because maybe in their old original home, gifts always had strings attached. Maybe a public meal together just meant more opportunity for public confrontation. Physical touch brought with it feelings of pain or shame. Chores were so much more than just helping out with the family. It was actually how you earned your belonging. Maybe it's what purchased you a warm night's sleep. And for some in foster home, these burdens of these ecosystems are never fully overcome, and it's a constant pressure of of loving even when it's hard. But for some of those children, those who perhaps go on to be adopted through the program, though slowly, change begins to come. And it comes not as they simply learn the patterns of the new home, but as they begin to learn the people who are in their new homes. They experience the love of their foster parents, and that love begins to change them. Patterns begin to change. Things that were once hostile or dangerous, fearful, they become comfortable because they realize behind it is love. Love like they've never experienced before. Things that once threatened them become overwhelmed by a new sense of trust they have with their foster parents. And the implications of this idea that we see so prevalently in our culture actually reach far beyond the foster program because the Bible makes it clear that each and every one of us are either children of this world or we are children of God. And Ephesians 2 makes it clear. Paul says, we are not by nature children of God. We are by nature children of wrath. The truth is there's no such thing as spiritual orphans. You belong to a family. You belong to an ecosystem, which means that even as we as broken people come to Jesus, which is how all of us come to Jesus, those patterns and those desires in our life, which we might know to be dangerous, we might know to be harmful. They still bring to us a sense of safety because they were our patterns. They were our desires. And when they begin to be threatened, to be displaced, we become a little anxious, a little uneasy in this new home in which God has brought us. But because God is the ultimate true father, he not only sees the danger of the home we were once in, but he wants to slowly, by his love, change us, to adapt us to life in a new home with a better love. Life as God's children changes you. And this transition into a new home is very much what Moses is doing with the people of God in the book of Deuteronomy as he's preparing them to enter into the promised land, very literally this new home. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, Moses has spent the last two sermons we've been together preaching to God's people this idea of you shall not worship the Lord your God in this way. Don't worship God like you used to. Don't worship God like the other people do. But now he's transitioning and he's beginning to preach to his people 
What does it look like to worship God? What does it look like to live in God's house? And as we see these rules, as we see these obligations, it's important to realize that these aren't disconnected, alien, or foreign concepts. It's not like these are being applied by some weird external way. In fact, look at how Moses opens this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 14. You are sons of the Lord your God. You are sons, children of the Lord your God. And just as different homes have different rules and experiences, so does life as a child of God have different experiences, which are experienced through different rules. And if we want to understand, if you want to understand what it's like to be a child of God, you must not only understand the change that God calls you to, Moses is calling for change, but more importantly, you must understand the God who changes you. You see, God doesn't ask us to change And then he loves us. He loves us, and then his love progressively changes us. And that's what we've been seeing all through Deuteronomy. It's not what we do. It's what God has done for us. And that slowly changes us as we respond to it. In Deuteronomy, through present day, those who followed God have always been different. They've always been distinct in some level. And this was as early as the second century, Roman officials began to talk about Christians as the third race. There weren't Jews They weren't Gentiles, they were altogether weird, and they had their own terrible music that gets played on radios, but people just eat it up all the time. There was always some sort of distinction, and I'm sure in your life, whether you're a Christian or you're non-Christian, you've wondered, why do we live like this? Why do they live like this? And the answer lies in the nature of our salvation and the goodness of our God. Understanding the God who saves us and the way in which he saves us explains why we live distinctly. And we're really going to pick up the pace now. We're in kind of the second section of Deuteronomy, chapters 12 through 26, and we're going to cover almost three full chapters today. And so we are not going to read every verse in that three passages. It's not even in your bulletin, but it doesn't fit. If you have a Bible, that's going to be great to follow along with. If you don't have one, you could grab one um, from the back. You could even take that home if you don't have a Bible. Um, But we're going to be flying through this today. And what we're going to see are three ways that living as a child of this God changes your life. If God says to you, you are a child of the Lord your God, your life changes in different ways. And what we're going to see today is this, is that life as God's children changes how we live, why we give, and why we gather. Those are going to be the three points we look at, how we live, why we give, and why we gather. And we see this first point today, as life as God's children changes how we live. Moses has been making this point really broadly throughout all of Deuteronomy, but as we get into these specific chapters, he's beginning to speak not broadly, but in details. And he opens up this passage like this, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so Moses reads this, kind of separating this, how they're mourning and talking about death. Don't cut yourself, don't cut your hair in a specific way in mourning for the dead. And then he goes in to say, if you have it in your Bibles, verse 3 opens up with, you shall not eat any abomination. And then he goes on to describe in verses 4, Through eight, he describes the land animals you can eat and the land animals you can't eat. And then in verses nine and 10, he describes what sea creatures you can eat and what sea creatures you can't eat. And then in verses 11 through 20, he talks about the things with wings that you can eat and the things with wings you cannot eat. And that's what he's preaching. That's his sermon to Israel right now. Why is he doing this and why is this captured forever in God's word given to us? Well, these are important for a couple reasons. One for health reasons and one for religious reasons. From a health standpoint, uh, most of the animals that Moses is allowing people to eat are animals that are, have minimally low risk of any sort of adverse side effects. And the animals that he's prohibiting eating, if you go through and read through those lists this week, you'll see a lot of those are animals um, which have potentially dangerous, if not handled properly, 
effects on the human body. And this is so crazy to think about because here we have in this pre-scientific world, God's grace in calling Moses to be this sort of ambassador of public health to God's people. He didn't need to do this. And he already is instructing them in a way of health. He's steering them away from food which might be dangerous, like undercooked uh, seafood or pork, which was hard in that time to regulate the temperature with it. And he even tells them not to, if you see something that's eating something that's dead and moldy, don't eat that thing that's eating the thing. (laughs) Don't do that. And so he's warning them, and it is God's grace that God cares about grace and even the details of our life. But when we look at this list, and when you look at this list maybe later, you'll see some of these food prohibitions and prescriptions are clear, and some of them aren't clear. We don't know why God has drawn the line in some places for God's people here when talking about food, but what we know is that it really mattered to God. God cared about what his people were eating because they're to be a people holy. That's how it started. You are a people holy to the Lord. You see that in verse uh, 2. And you also see it, um, uh, we'll see it later on in the text as well. But he's saying you are to be set apart. You are to be different. You are to be distinct in even how you eat. And this leads into the second reason. It's not only health reasons that that Moses is prescribing this, but there's also religious reasons. And you saw it in verses 1 and 2 as he's describing kind of these cultic pagan rituals that people had when grieving for the dead. And that's part of the reason why even their tables were to be different because as people grieved for the dead, there was this celebration that involved food. And that's part of the reason why the pig is so um, prohibited in this text is not only did it fall under kind of some dangerous dietary restrictions at the time, but also... These pagans and these Canaanites, we see this later on in Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, would take pigs and they would go to graveyards and they would do some weird things with pigs in order to grieve for the dead, which involved doing things with the pigs and eating the pigs in certain ways and handling the pig's flesh in certain ways. And, and God is saying, you are to be set apart. As my people, you are not to eat like this. You are not to grieve like this. Now, perhaps you've been somebody who um, has encountered some very zealous, well-read, religious scholar who looks at these texts and say, this proves that Christians aren't really serious about the Bible. Why should we care about the sexual ethics of the Bible if you're over here eating bacon and here it says you can't eat pigs? Well, it's important to remember that if we read the Bible, even at an elementary level, we see that Jesus resolves this tension. Jesus came and fulfilled the whole law. All these laws that Moses is seeing our standards for perfection that we quickly see we can't meet, but Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled the law. In fact, once in Jesus' ministry and once in the book of Acts, God declares all food to be clean. This isn't because God doesn't believe his people shouldn't be distinct, but it's because our distinction as God's people is no longer in what we eat, no longer in what we wear, no longer in where we live. Our distinction as Christians is belonging to Jesus the one who fulfilled all of the law of perfection in and of himself. We are distinct in Jesus Christ. He is what shapes everything unique about us because being found in Jesus is being found in the righteousness of God. But that doesn't mean that just because Jesus fulfilled this and now we stand in Jesus so the standards of perfection are given to us that we just disregard all of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't do that. We shouldn't do that. That won't get you anywhere good. But what it does mean is when we look at this is we see this holistic distinction that even the New Testament affirms and it helps us understand it better. Here Moses is showing God's people how their view of death and how their view of food was influenced by their salvation. Now there are few things more common to us than death and diets. And for many of us, they're the same thing. And here Moses is talking about this commonality here, right? The idea that today we eat for tomorrow we die has been around forever. Moses is talking about it here. The preacher talks about it in Ecclesiastes. Paul quotes it as some sort of pop culture reference in 1 Corinthians 15. And we see it in our movies and in our magazines and in our books even today. Today we eat for tomorrow we die. There is nothing more universal than what you eat and your inevitability to die. It covers the whole of our life. And here Moses is saying that everything in between, 
from something as monumental as death and something as ordinary as a meal, your salvation changes the way you view it. It really changes how we view all of our life. For instance, death is tragic and it's universal, but the ways in which God's people process death should not look like the ways culture processes death. We ought to be different as believers because when it comes to the universality of death, it reminds us that we still have a problem. Thousands of years of human history, the rise of the Enlightenment thought, scientific discoveries, chicken wings, nothing has changed the fact that we still die. Something is still immensely broken in our world. And we can't ignore it. But in the gospel, God does something about it. In the gospel, he sends Jesus Christ, very God of very God, God in the flesh, to die. And then he rose him up again. You see, it's only God that can ever do anything about the issue of death. In the gospel, death becomes, to be, becomes undone in the work of Jesus Christ. And this now brings us not only a reminder that we need God, but it shows us the hope of the gospel. This is what Paul meant when he was writing to the Thessalonian church who was wrestling with this idea of death. They were grieving just like the pagan people were grieving, just like Moses was talking about thousands of years prior to it. And look at what he says. 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, verses 13 through 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's a nice way of Paul saying they're dead. He's writing to a church, and he's more sensitive as a pastor than me. So, um, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For believers, death not only reminds us of our need, but there's this additional level that when we are grieving those who worshiped Christ alongside us, we know that this is not the end. That each and every person will truly live eternally. But by God's grace, those who call on him will live eternally in new life with Christ forever. That every tear will be wiped away and that we will rise and be like Christ in resurrected bodies by the power of Jesus where cancer and disease and malnutrition and poverty and violence can no longer touch us. Death brings close to us the promises of God, and we view it differently as Christians. When it comes to our food, again, this is so common. We talk about death, we have a tension. It shakes us. When we talk about food, it doesn't really shake us. It's so ordinary. But God really does care about how you think about food. Now, Jesus fulfilled these dietary laws for us. We don't have to follow these anymore. But when you sit down and eat, do you even eat differently? I don't mean that there are some people who eat cereal with an open mouth and some people who don't. Um, you know, that's true. That's not what the Bible's after here. What this means is that when, we, when you sit down and when you're about to eat some food, and you don't for one second have to worry about which food has been set apart. You're reminded of the miracle that in Jesus, you have been set apart. You are the thing that has been declared righteous because of Christ's immense work on the cross. When you eat food and you don't think about it, you eat this delicious food, you put that bacon into your mouth, you order up a side of calamari and you are munching on that. Think about this. Do this today. When you go to lunch after this, someone order illegal Bible foods after this, okay? That's your, that's your application. Go order illegal Bible foods and think of this. If freedom for food tastes this good, imagine how good freedom from sin in Jesus Christ is. Just think about that. That experience that God has given you, which points to what only Jesus can do. Man, we should eat differently as Christians. Paul says so. As he's helping the Corinthian church understand this, he says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 10, uh, 10, or 1 Corinthians 10, excuse me, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do in all of the mundaneness of life, do all to the glory of God. At Sovereign Hope, we fight for this idea of gospel change for all of life. 
because we really believe that God has spoken to us, that the gospel doesn't just change what we do on Sunday mornings. The gospel doesn't just change how we view death. The gospel changes the details of our life because every aspect of our life was broken and Christ has redeemed it all for his glory. And now, after Moses talks about these dietary laws and these death laws, he transitions away from what we bring to the table and he focuses instead on what we give to God. And this is the second point today, is that we see that life as God's children changes why we give. Not only shapes the scope of our life from death to meals, but it shapes why we give. We have a membership process here at Sovereign Hope, and there's a couple things that um, are in that process, but one of the things that we do are membership interviews. And what that means is uh, someone who's applying to be a member sits down with an elder And we just talk through uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And this is my favorite part because we get to hear the miracles of what Jesus has done in your life. That Jesus has come and he has transferred you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light. We get to hear the wonderful miracles of God's salvation through the conversion of his saints. But there's also, despite my affinity for these things, we also talk about giving. We ask the question, are you willing to financially support God's church here at Sovereign Hope. And in that moment, I long to talk about church discipline. (laughs) In that moment, I just want to talk about food laws forever. Anything seems more comfortable than asking people if they are going to give to the church. And we ask because that's part of what God wants people to do. In fact, we see it here in Deuteronomy. It is all over God's word that we are to be generous with our finances, that having a relationship with a father like this father ultimately causes us to give like this father. It affects our generosity. And it's here in Deuteronomy where Moses begins to talk about the generosity of God's people. And he does this in a couple ways. In the end of chapter 14, he talks about these yearly tithes, these tithes that they didn't give every month back then because they had to travel to a specific place. And so they gave every year a tenth, a literal tenth of what it was that they had made or earned that year. And then they talk about the every three-year tithe, the specific tithe that happens every three years. And then in chapter 15, he talks about the sabbatical year, this every seven years or this year of release. And what's interesting is that this is a portion of Scripture that starts with a tithe that is given to God. But at the end of it, we really see it's passages about giving to others. Giving to God ultimately ended up in giving to others. And in fact, we see the groundwork of God's remarkable system of social care here, which isn't fueled by a corporate state or by a tax. Instead, it's fueled by individuals who are reflecting on God's goodness and responding in generosity in all things. And there's really two reasons we see in this text that people are to give. They're to give first to God because they're grateful, and they're to give second to others because God has been gracious to them. We give to God because we're grateful, and we give to others because God has been gracious to us, and we ought to be gracious to those who are around us. We see attitudes of this gratefulness in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 27. Moses says this, "'You shall tithe all the yield of your seed,' that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and the flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long, and so that's if God's special place when you get into the land, if the place where the temple is one day going to be is too far from you, So you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there. Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. And when you get there, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns for he has no portion or inheritance with you. And so here we see that they're to go every year with a tenth of whatever produce they had. If you had a vineyard and some cattle, you'd take a tenth of your vineyard and a tenth of your flock and you'd go and you'd offer it to God. You'd you'd sacrifice them there to the Lord. 
But did you notice what was at the heart of Israel's giving? At the heart of Israel's giving, after them traveling and them maybe changing money to make it more easier to go places, there's this command that you shall rejoice as you eat before the Lord, you and your household. For so much of us, we treat our money, our time, what it is we can make, what it is we can do, and we treat it in such a way we're giving up a tenth of it. Sounds more like a threat than like a treat, but that doesn't line up with how God is describing this, this atmosphere of giving in Deuteronomy. And what's interesting here is Moses is preaching, this is a sermon. He's preaching this as a sermon. This is Moses the pastor exhorting God's people. And in Leviticus, he wrote not a sermon. He wrote a pretty detailed description of these laws. And in Leviticus, you see more details on what you're to do with the tithe, what kind of tithes are applicable, um, how you're to get your tithes, what it's to look like when you get to the temple. But here, Moses as a preacher is emphasizing something unique. And did you notice the recipients? Who benefits from these tithes? Well, first he says, when you get there, take your tithe and eat it. If you, if you love chicken wings and all you got is cattle, and it's too far, you sell that cattle, you get to the place, you buy some chicken, and you eat it before God with a tenth of your income. And then he says, and, and when you're there, don't neglect the Levite. Share it with the Levite. Share your tenth with the Levite. Did you notice what's absent in this text? God's receipt of the tithe. The tithe causes you to rejoice. The tithe provides for the Levite. But God doesn't need your money. Idols need your money. Politicians need your money. Parking meters need your money. God does not need your money. He's not after your wine. He's after your worship. You don't give to God because God has some lack or some need. You give to God because he is worthy of being given to You give to God because it is the overflow of worship which says, this is what I get to offer to you. And what's interesting is as much as God didn't need the tithe because he's God, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Levites did. And you've seen this theme a couple times in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is prescribing how the people are to treat the Levite. And it always comes up with this, this clause that the Levite has no inheritance in the land. So when they go into the land, God divides it up and gives it to specific tribes so they have this literal inheritance. But the Levites didn't get land because God had called the Levites to minister in the tabernacle and then what would soon become the temple. The Levites didn't have fields or vines. The Levites had the worship of God in the sanctuary. They were those who were set aside for the full-time work of ministry. The ministry of God's people, even going back to Deuteronomy, was supported by God's people. And even the Levites, when they received a tithe, they tithed off of their tithe. In other words, God didn't need the tithe, but all of the people did. If the people wanted corporate ministry, if the people wanted to sacrifice to meet the requirements of the law, it came out of their generosity. I used this illustration for those of you who were at the open house we had a couple weeks ago, but I knew of a pastor who toured the Middle East. And uh, he asked the local pastor he was with, Uh, how did these mosques that are everywhere get funded? It's often lower um, income areas, people with not a lot of financial standing, and yet there there are these elaborate, lavish mosques. And the local pastor said, well, the state funds the mosques. The the Muslim state gives money, sets sets aside land so that they can have these. But what's interesting is that even in Deuteronomy, God didn't prescribe a state to take money and then to to fuel the ministry of the church. Instead, the church has always been funded. Missions have always been funded. Bible translations have always been funded by the generosity of believers. You see, we don't give because giving is some act that earns us a standing before God. We give because it's a privilege to worship God with what he's given us, whatever our talents are, whatever our finances are, and we want more and more people to know the privilege of loving this God. We give because God uses the weak and meager efforts that we offer to him to expand his worship, 
through the growth of churches, through missions, through Bible translations, through all of those things. God's people give to that end because they've seen firsthand the beauty of this God. And what's unique is we see it going to the Levite, but at the end of chapter 14, Moses describes this tithe that happens every third year. And something distinct happens every third year where they don't go to the place with their tithe, Instead, everybody goes to the middle of their town and they leave their tithe at the middle of the town so that the Levite, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner can come and take from the tithe what they need to survive. You see, as Christians, not only are we called to give to God, but our giving to God demands that we also give to others. And Moses really leverages this point home in chapter 15 as he begins to describe this Sabbath year, this every seventh year, or the year of release. And if you have time this week, I encourage you to go read through Deuteronomy 15 and, and think about the challenging and weighty things that Moses gave the people of God back then and how those of us who have seen God's greater revelation in Jesus Christ had to think about generosity even in our own day. And what we see is this amazing social program that God designed this seventh year to be. And next week, we're going to look more at God's social justice, which is a, a hot topic in our world today, and turns out God cares about social justice. But this Deuteronomy 15 is really the framework for uh, what will follow and we'll look at next week. And this year of Sab uh, the Sabbath year opens up with this, Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. If you skip ahead to verse 12, he also says this. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So basically in this Sabbath year, this year of release, two things would happen. The first thing that would happen, which was land that was being leased or debts which were being paid would be suspended for one year. For the only reason that it would provide those who are economically disadvantaged a year to get back on their feet. This is the creator of the universe who sees that we have a problem of sin that separates us eternally from him and has earned the wages of his eternal divine wrath, who cares that you could go a year without paying interest on your loan. How great is this God? How kind is he for the details in our life? Why wouldn't this change every aspect of our life? You see, contrary to what you might hear in history books, Christianity is not a religion of power. It, from its origin, God was making concessions to those who are disadvantaged, to those who are in debt. Why? Because this is what life's like in God's home. God serves those who are disadvantaged, who are stuck, who are enslaved, and he proclaims favor. So not only was there this release, but there was also um, this release in terms of slaves. It says Hebrew slaves which were taken were eligible for release in the Sabbath year. And this is why we need to be careful. We, we should question, we should understand the context of any time the Bible talks about slavery. But this is why it's not safe, nor is it historically accurate, to just assume that any time slave is mentioned in the Bible, that it's equivalent to American chattel slavery. It's distinct. And actually, Deuteronomy will go on to describe ways in which Hebrews had to treat slaves. They had rights. They, had, they, they could be punished for how they treated their slaves or their servants. And here Moses assumes that at some point, these slaves are people who needed to pay off a debt, had nothing left, and so in order of being put in jail or killed they were able to indebt themselves to somebody as a sort of servant and work to pay off their loan. But look at how astounding this release was to be. It's not only that in the seventh year they get released, but look at what Moses says in verses 13 through 15. And when you let him go, when, and when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. 
You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And here's what I love about this text is we live in a society, and maybe it's always been the case. I've only really lived in this one, so you have too. Um, and where, where money is king. And to have money is to have power. To have money is to have the ability to give. To have money is the ability to bless. And if you don't have that money, if you can't bless me, if you can't give to me, then you really don't have much at all. And here Moses says that God's people blessed other people out of the abundance which God has blessed them. And when we hear this, we come dangerously close to thinking in terms of the prosperity gospel. That if we're good, God gives us lots of things, lots of wealth, and if we have lots of wealth, then we can bless others. And don't get me wrong, it's not that God isn't saying that he has blessed the rich and that the rich should use that wealth to give to others, but it's that God is actually saying something more here, isn't he? And we know that because Moses defines the blessing. What is the blessing? The blessing is this. You were once a slave in Egypt, and the Lord redeemed you. That's the blessing. That's the storehouse out of which all God's people are to be generous. Does God care about your money? Yes. Should you financially support God's church and the needs in your community? Yes. But more importantly, God wants to see his people serve his church and their community out of an overflow of their redemption, which is far more costly and of far greater value. This includes your money. It also includes your time, your homes, in your hands. I want you to hear this. We've got a lot of college students who are all back there grouped together. You have no money, but to have been saved by Jesus is to have been given resources for radical generosity because we have been delivered by this king. You see, in the New Testament, there are no prescriptions for tithes, nor are there sabbatical laws. But look at this unique passage of Scripture one that Jesus reads in reference to himself in the middle of the temple in Luke chapter 4. Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, listen here, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why is it that despite cultural location, despite historical context, despite economic status, despite the amount of money in your savings account, Christians throughout history have always been the most generous to the disadvantaged? Because Jesus has proclaimed a perpetual year of release on us. He has come to proclaim the year of God's favor, where you, because of your sins, are indebted eternally to God. But Jesus Christ came, and he paid the penalty for your sins. Not so that you might have a year of relief, but so you might have a new lease on all of life that you had a burden that hung over your head, that you could not work your way out of, but Christ came generously to die, to pay it, so that you might have life. And because of this, because of this rich generosity we have in Jesus, it should typify that we are, if we are made children of God by Jesus Christ, that we leak generosity everywhere we go. If only to the end where we say, Jesus is like this. This relief you've experienced is nothing compared to the relief which is in Jesus Christ. This burden that I might help lift of jump-starting a car, of helping you make rent, of making you a meal train, these are shadows of which Christ is the substance given to us. And our community sees the love of Jesus. It's our prayers. We move into a new building and we lay down roots in a new community. That our generosity is felt there. That our city is better off because of it. We pray that as you consider sitting in here today and you look around this room, 
Are the members of this church better cared for because you have been redeemed? Because you are generous. I I feel like we're making headway here. I really do. We talk about the 50-50 legacy and being a healthy church and a Missoula church. God's doing wonderful things, and we praise God for that. But he's doing all these wonderful things because he's calling us to focus on the wonderful redemption we have in Jesus Christ. The community of God knows the salvation of the Father, and over time they begin to give like the Father because they know what life is like in God's house. And this rolls into our last point of distinction today, that living as God's children changes why we gather For many of us, we have vices, proclivities, maybe sins, where we are much more comfortable being not here than being here. We're more prone to be isolated, alone, than we are to together. But one of the distinctions that God's people have historically had is they always gather. We see it in Deuteronomy, we see it in Acts, the end of Acts chapter 2, of them gathering together, sharing everything in common. Why is that? Why is it that the closer we get to Christ, the closer Christ brings us to his community? Well, Moses is going to make this point clear. God's community gathers because they have something to celebrate. They have something worthy of pulling everybody together and responding to. And he outlines these celebrations in terms of three feasts. And we see these three feasts kind of summarized in verse 16, where Moses says this in chapter 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called the Passover, they kind of get lumped together here. The Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So here you have these three feasts. The Passover was in the spring. The Feast of Weeks was at the beginning of the harvest. The Feast of Booths was at the end of the harvest. And they kind of became these timepieces for the people of Israel. You knew what time of year it was in relation to what feast was coming up or what feast was just finished. And what's interesting is I bet all of us have things in our life that are timepieces like this. So for me, winter is playoff season for football. Spring is draft season. Summer is training camp. And fall is regular season. You ask me where we're at in the year, and I could speak in reference to that. Maybe it's that one season is scouting season or scoping season, and one season is hunting season, and one season is preparing meat that you killed. Maybe it's traveling. This is where I travel. This is where I save money to travel. This is when school starts. This is where I take a break from school. We are so prone at putting centerpieces in the middle of our time and living in preparation for and in response to them. But central to God's community was an intentional effort to keep the good news of God's salvation as the centerpiece of their time. Look at what lay at the center of these events. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Verse 3. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day you came out of the land of Egypt. Verse 6. But at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. Verse 10. Then you shall keep the feast of the weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 12. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So at the center of all of Israel's corporate gatherings was a celebration of what God had done. Really at three levels. The first being Passover, that in order for them to be delivered, someone needed to die. Blood needed to be spilled. And because they spilled the blood of a lamb, God passed over them and delivered them. The Feast of Weeks, they remember that God is providing a harvest that God didn't bring them out to starve. Remember, that was their complaint in the desert. Did you bring us here to starve? Send us back to Egypt where we have meat pots. But God says, look at what I've given to you. And at the Feast of Booze, when the harvest is over, he says, don't fret. Don't wring your hands wondering if I'm going to continue to provide. But now that all the hay is in the barn, rejoice. For everything you have is from me anyway. They were always reminding and remembering the centerpiece of God's redemption. And what's interesting 
is once again the corporate nature of these gatherings. See, it was God's people who were to gather. But look at how attractive these gatherings were to the surrounding community in verses 14 and 15. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the works of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. The community of God was designed in such a way whereas God's people gather to remember God's wonderful provision, it was attractive to those who were on the outside. It invited them in, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the sojourner, people who were not by nature part of the community. Moses says, bring them in. And people wanted to come in. It was attractive, but attractive for the right reasons. It was attractive, why? Because what was made visible in the gathering of God's people at these three times each year was the joy of being saved by this God. It modeled in a visible way the delight of being a son or a daughter of a father like this. There's this wonderfully subtle turning point here in verse 16 through 17 uh, where he, Paul says, or Moses says this. He says, they, that's when they're appearing these three times before God, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given to you. According to the blessing the Lord your God has given to you. So here's this tension. Moses says, make no mistake. Going to these feasts costs you. Costs you the first fruit of your flock, of your produce. Costs you your sacrifice, your offering, your tithe, your free will offering. But did you see what it said at the end? Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given to you. Meaning that God demanded something from them. But what God demanded, he also provided for them. See, the Old Testament is not void of God's grace. We put this false dichotomy in Scripture and we say the New Testament is the God of grace. The Old Testament is a God of works. No, God is saying this is what I need and then he's slipping it into our pocket. God always gives you what you need to worship and follow him. And it's this pattern which points forward to the greater generosity in the new community feast in the New Testament. Just as it was with food laws and with tithes and with Sabbaths and here with, um, with feasts, we no longer have to keep these because Jesus has established something better. In fact, he transforms these feasts of remembrance to something amazing. On the night of the Passover, during the time of Jesus, Jesus and his disciples gathered together and he instituted a new feast, the Lord's Supper. Read with me Luke 22, 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What an amazing phrase. This is my body given for you. Do you see the contrasts between the two? Going to the Passover and the Feast of Booze and the Feast of Weeks, it calls God's people to remind what they can bring to God. But here at the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of what Christ has brought to us. That Christ has brought to us himself. He has provided for us his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out so that we might come and rejoice, that we might come and have liberty, that we might come and be changed, changed by a blood more effective than the idols of the families of our world, 
Jesus was killed as the true Passover lamb that we might have life. He is the true harvest which satisfies. He has given us the Holy Spirit which in times of drought or sorrow endures us to faith. And this deliverance is the center of this community. And we want to make strides together of making it the center of our time, the center of our homes, the center of our community groups, the center of our weeks, the center of our lives. We want to be longing and looking for what is next in God's grace to us. Why are Christians different? Because our salvation is totally different from anything this world offers. This salvation is a salvation of a God who loves people who are broken and invites us in to know him in order to be changed more and more like him. Christianity does not start with having a better worldview on death. Christianity does not start with tithing or generosity. Christianity does not start with religious rituals or Christian assemblies. Christianity starts by knowing firsthand God's deliverance. And that truth is the truth that changes everything. That truth is a truth that as we encounter pockets of our own life where we long for our old home, that's the truth that warms us to how safe and wonderful life is in God's family, even if it seems uncomfortable and dangerous. Because no one loves us like this God loves us. So if you're not a believer today, I want to invite you to see this God and his love for you. What other God cares so intimately for your life that he prescribes things like this? And if you're a Christian, I want to ask you, where is this love continuing to change you as God's covenant people, as a child of God, so in this gathering, people might see the attractive beauty of being changed by a salvation like this? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given yourself to us, that you have loved us in a way which changes the details of our lives. And we pray that as we respond today in taking the Lord's Supper, that we do so rightly, that this is a foretaste of what we'll one day eat in heaven with you, and that from this day until we get there, we pledge to experience your love more and more in Jesus Christ and to be changed more and more by Jesus Christ in every area, from death to dinner, from giving to generosity, and Lord, from our gathering and our hope. We pray for all of this in your name. Amen.